Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. Now, in this episode, with its rich, nutty, toasty, and hazy character, oat malt has seen a recent rise in popularity, but its history and use go way, way, way back. I'm sitting down with Peter Simons to talk about his research in the creation, marketing, and chicanery that surrounds the oat malt stout and its knockoff cousin, the oatmeal stout. But first, a message from our sponsors. The seltzer sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Want to get discounts on homebrew supplies and save money at craft breweries? Join the American Homebrewers Association and save at more than 2,300 AHA member deal locations worldwide and online. Members enjoy discounts on pints, food, and merchandise, and 10 to 30% off online orders. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to check out the AHA member deals in your area and join the AHA. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and access thousands of members-only discounts. There was this rise of oatmeal stouts as kind of like, oh, look, it's healthy and more nutritious for you. But a lot of the recipes contained like very minimal amount of oats. Yeah, I, I, I covered that. Um, what I did in the in the presentation is um, when we got to the, the patent, uh, I did some searching to claim your medical benefits. It's it's good if you get a um, uh, an endorsement by the medical profession. So in 1896, the Medical Journal and the Lancet analyze Maclay's um, oat malt stout. That gave me uh, a value for the ABV, around 6.3%, gave me the attenuation figure. And um, the the Lancet in particular was damning with faint praise because uh, on dietetic grounds, there's no reason d'etre for the substitution of oat for barley malt and the flavor is not nearly as good. So they, they weren't overly keen with the oaty flavor of the stack. Why, why, if I didn't know better, it sounded like brewers were still lying to people back in the days. Ah, yeah, marketing's marketing. <laughs> uh, uh, but to your point about the um, lack of oats, 
in uh, 1920s and 30s and 40s oatmeal stouts. Uh, in in my book, Galbraith's, uh, I got three examples of oatmeal stouts. And what did I have? I had uh, a magnificent total of 5 5.3%, 8.1% flaked oats. So it was very nominal amount. The, the, the one that was uh, the most nominal was, was Whitbread in the 1930s because what they, what they did, they had um, – uh, they basically party guard their London stout with their extra stout, and the London stout, the oatmeal stout, were exactly the same, and that had 0.7% by my calculation of oats. Their description of oatmeal stout met all uh, what we would understand by trade practices type false and misleading advertising, because it did have oats in it, but not a huge amount. But that's marketing for you. Absolutely. Well, and so speaking of marketing, I think this is a perfectly fine point for us to cut it in and let the audience in on what we're talking about. And so welcome, everybody, from my wonderful backyard here in Pasadena, California. This is, of course, The Brew Files. And we are talking about one of my favorite subjects because it was the second episode on The Brew Files, oats. I love oats. I love oats and beer. I love oat malt. But I can talk about what I know about it. But I think it's more interesting to talk about where I think everybody started using them or where it really sort of first caught everybody's attention in stout. And so for that, we have a return visitor, Mr. Peter. Say hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs> or good eye. <laughs> Peter, walk me through walk me through the world of uh, oatmeal and oat malt and oat malt stouts and why the hell do we care and why, why should we still be making them? Well, oat, oat malt stout, when it's um, uh, well-brewed, is one of my favorite styles. It's 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 just a, a lovely drink. It's got a, a little bit more complexity uh, than a uh, dry Irish stout, and it's not as sweet as a as a sweet or milk stout. So it sits nicely in the middle, and as I say, if it's nicely brewed, it's uh, it's a good drop. And it all all started a long time ago. See, oats oats are quite a, a wonderful thing. It's not just what you put in your porridge. Uh, they've been used for a really long time in brewing. Uh, I managed to, I looked at Hornsey's uh, beer and brewing book, and he went back to to the 1600s. And I did a bit of Googling, and I got back to 1320, where there was an, an actual reference to um, barley malt and oat malt. And the oat malt was cheaper than the barley malt. So, yeah, it's been used in, in brewing for a really long time. You you were talking earlier before we we started rolling on this about the difference between like oats and porridge and oats as malt. Yeah, uh, oats. You've got a range of oats. We'll look at what you get in the in the supermarket. So you can get pre gelatinized oats, and these are um, opinionated views. They may or may not tally with others. Instant oats are really not oaty enough. They're they're a bit bland. Rolled or flaked oats, fairly neutral flavour, bit of texture, bit of, bit of mouthfeel. But oats or groats, steel cut, uh, they're more primary oats and you, you would need to um, boil them in a cereal mash and you, you, you get more, more multi, uh, more, more porridgey type flavours from that. There's a lot of crystal oats or naked oats. Uh, crystal oats are the ones that are um, crystallized, so it's it's more of your, your caramel-type malt. 
they're not necessarily uh, a key flavor ingredient, in my view, uh, of, of an oatmeal stack. Uh, and you can always toast your own oats. There are lots of suppliers of uh, malted oats, uh, mostly in the UK. Uh, here, there's um, Gladfield in New Zealand or Voyager. I'm, I'm not, I'm not across where you get malted oats in um, in the US. I presume Brees or somebody like that. It's funny because for years, before the rise of the hazy IPA, uh, for years the only malted oats I ever saw here were faucets. And there was no U.S. production of malted oats, right? You'd find flaked oats all over the place, but no, uh, no uh, malted oats. And then I think with the rise of the hazies, now suddenly we're seeing a bunch of domestic su- uh, suppliers as well. On the basis that that an, an oatmeal stout would use orange type oats of some description, an oat malt stout. Uh, I had a look through um, the manufacturers' websites, and I just picked. Um, Simpsons, as an example, but uh, faucets or um, crisp, uh, very similar. So they took the view that flaked oats would give you a neutral flavour, sort of silky with creamy being in the descriptor. Malted oats would give you creamy, velvety smooth mouthfeel. And crystallised malted oats, so that would be the um, golden naked type ones, creamy nutty breakfast cereal bar so you've you've got a range of um of flavors to play with within within the oat range if you like interesting because those descriptions do kind of line up with how i think of oats where just instant oats are usually terrible and oxidized and and taste rancid so don't use those because they're basically the the pre-rolled oats that have been chopped up into tiny little pieces and tiny little pieces means more surface area which means more oxidation but the the flaked oats are are fine. They're yeah, a little rich, but not not terribly interesting. And I think the other thing I would say, other than velvety with the oat malt, is I do start to pick up some sort of toasty bready characters with it that I think come from the malting. Yeah, I've I've done a few um, just to leap across boundaries. I've I did some mash hopping. I did a mash hop beer of a uh, a nineteen. Um, uh, a 1940s um, recipe that I had from St. Austell Brewery. And that, because of the um, uh, difficulties of the time during the war, they were they were requested, i.e. you must, uh, use um, oats. And I, I've used oats in uh, low-gravity sort of 1030, 1032 uh, pale ales. And uh, that comes out... It's just giving it a little bit more mouthfeel in such a low gravity beer, so it it's a useful it's a useful adjunct um, uh, in there. In that instance, I, I think I just used um, uh, our uh, traditional Uncle Toby's oats, oats here. Uh, I guess that would be Quake, Quakers in your neck of the woods. Yeah, it's a good option in 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 many beers, not just uh, oat meal stouts. But there is a difference. You see, this started out as an oat malt stout, very particularly. So, in other words, it started off using the more complicated ingredient, and then the style eventually devolved into using sort of the grocery self- shelf ingredient? Yeah, well, sort of, sort of, because the, the oat malt stout uh, originated from Maclay's in uh, Alloa in, uh, in Scotland in 1895. 
and they advertise it as the beverage of the century. Brewed from malt, produced from the finest Scotch oats, and protected by Her Majesty, that's Queen Victoria, Royal Letters Patent. This tickled me a bit because um, I've looked at lots of patents, which I find quite quite good for you know looking into the history of things. And it's one of the the rare examples that I've found of a patented recipe. And it's actually got the details of the grist in pounds, in old money and barrels, as in imperial barrels that all needed to be converted into something more manageable. So not only did Alexander Fraser of Maclay's uh, patent an oat malt stout, also patented an oat malt pale ale the following year, which I haven't had a crack at because the topic was oat malt stout, but it shows that you could do many things and, and oats are quite a versatile material. Now, isn't that funny, though, that you're talking so an oat malt pale ale, and I've, I've made pale ales before with oat malts because I love oat malt, and I like the, the creaminess it gives up against the hops, but isn't it funny to think that here we are over 100 years ago, people talking about an oat malt pale ale, and nowadays people are running around throwing oat malt into hazy IPAs. The, the wheel keeps turning. It does, it does, and um, seldom is something that pops up today, not been done before, or experimented with you you never know how um how applicable a patent may have been it may just been patented and then blunt but this one has taken uh, this patent took a life of its own really because uh as i say they they did a a big marketing campaign for it now a patent as far as i can find out at this period would have lasted for 14 years now the bass and the Guinnesses of this world were a hugely resourced organization that took anybody infringing their patent or copyright on labels uh, or passing off beers very seriously and were able to um, litigate through the courts. Now, I, I suspect that Maclay's, as being a relatively small brewery, wouldn't have had the resources to, to do that. What we see I, over time is that people twig that well, if I don't use oat malt, but I use oatmeal, I can claim all of these benefits that the patent holder has and not infringe the patent. Which is always the danger of, uh, of using a patent, or you kind of have to show your hand. And if people figure out a way around what you've shown, then yeah, they can run, run away with your idea. That's right. But perhaps they may or may not have used the special ingredients. Now, the special ingredients were ground linseed and licorice L- licorice I guess, as giving that little brewer's licorice anise thingy what the heck does linseed give you well linseed um it's flaxseed i found it in the in the cupboard it's apparently according to the packet it's good for um those with constipation a warning here for everybody it um softens and lubricates the bowel motion it may just be that the uh, the linseed was the, uh, shall we say, the claim for medical benefit justification. Get your nutrition from your oats and uh, get your clear uh, clear running day from the linseed. Yes, having partaken of stouts over many years, um, perhaps these things are, um, uh, are taken as uh, taken as red anyway. So the the licorice, um, quite a quite a well-known ingredient in stouts 
uh, and was also used in a lot of brewing sugar proprietary mixes as well. And we should note for listeners who are thinking of the candied sort of licorice, when I see brewer's licorice over here in the States, which I haven't seen a lot of recently because I think the call for it has died out, it comes looking like a candy stick, but it is terribly not sweet and terribly potent and only requires a little bit. I used uh, eBay and I bought uh, organic licorice root, which is uh, a flaked form of uh, licorice. I've also been able to get licorice from um, Asian um, supermarkets. Uh, it seems to be quite a, a common ingredient there. Uh, but they've been, they've been dried and flaked and, and not at all like a, like a syrup or a candy. Here, the one that we always see looks like a candy cane or sugar candy stick, but doesn't taste like it. I generally like licorice anyway. So it, if, if you like a little bit of aniseedy, it's a layer. It's a, in, in the in the stout. Perhaps I should just run through um, briefly what's in the stout. Let's do it. Right, just under seventy one percent oat malt. Wow, seventy one percent. About twelve percent pale malt. So golden promise would be a, a good choice there as being vaguely. Uh, I converted their burnt sugar into number three invert sugar. A little bit of white cane sugar and some Parisian essence for to get a bit of darkness in there. The Parisian eff- uh, essence here in the States is a, I mean, it's a caramel coloring. Yeah, it's, um, and I'll explain in a bit, because I, I brewed a, a stout, and I followed my own recipe, and uh, I'll talk about that in a little bit. So, and apart from that, it was about 6% amber malt, which would give that, that crystallized uh, flavor, plus the um, grand linseed, I put it in at 15 minutes, 1.4 grams per litre, and the licorice at uh, 0.5 grams per litre. Those of you who use ounces, you know, you know go on Google and get a calculator. <laughs> Ideally, um, this would be a, a batch of uh, 24 litres, uh, or say in six gallons or something like that, US 1062 down to 1014, ABV 6.3. The... 2.8 grams per litre, Fuggles or East Kent Coldings, doesn't really matter, boil, boil 70 minutes. Yeah, so you're not going for a lot of bitterness. No, no, but that again is a discussion for later. Uh, the uh, And then use probably Edinburgh Ale Yeast. You could use 002 so, or WLP 028. I suspect this one, the grist I got from the patent, the hopping rate I got from the patent, uh, the licorice and the linseed I got from the patent. Uh, the IBUs is cal- calculated using Tinseth. That was 34. Uh, the fermentation, uh, pick something around 18, 19C and use a relevant yeast. So I've interpreted a little bit, but I have used the base, um, uh, the base patent. And it's interesting because, I mean, again, vast majority of malt, and for listeners, remember that oat malt itself can self-convert. Yeah, it it has enough diastatic power, yeah. But so much of the color is coming from the essence and the invert. It's all coming from there. Did you notice there were no roasted malts in that recipe? Yeah, that's, that's what made me stop. I'm like, wait, how do you, how do you have a stout with no roast? Okay. Well, they, they sold um, uh, proprietary mixtures of how to make your oat malt stout. 
which would be a mix, I guess, of, uh, of sugars and, and caramel. Uh, and they sold this oaten concoction that you would add to your base stout to make it oatmeal stout. Mm. I did a bit more. I, I was aware of, um, from Ron Pattinson's blog, shut up about Barclay Perkins. Um, they did a, a 1909 Maclay's uh, recreation in 2012. I couldn't get that to reconcile with the patent quantities. Uh, so I, I got in touch with Ron and he sent me the, the brew log. That one was different and I don't necessarily agree with the interpretation of the log. But what was interesting to show uh, we're at the end of the patent period ish, 1909. Here we've got now 46%. Uh, this is my version of an interpretation. So it's now 46% of pale malt. 30% oat malt. Now we've got a little bit of black malt in for colouring, 7%. Got some invert sugar, uh, some cane sugar, still got some amber malt, and they've put some adjunct in. They've got some flake maize. Again, it's still sitting around 1062, down to 1013, 6.4%. And I decided I'd do a, a lower alcohol version. Uh, McClay's made a double brown stout, and it was party guard with the oat malt stout. So I thought something at 10.45 uh, would be more quaffable, you know, get around 4.2, 4.5 ABV. So I used my skills, and I brewed that uh, three weeks ago. Nice. Well, yes and no. I, we had our brew, brew club meeting last night, and I, you'd have to say, um, when told it was uh, a double brown stout, and it didn't look quite brown enough, and it definitely didn't taste stouty enough. There were a lot of – they're used to me turning up with concoctions, and I have to say that. <laughs> and and I'm used to receiving full and frank feedback. And uh, it was more of your brown, light brown IPA. It was very hoppy. So what I normally do is that I will discount uh, hopping rates depending on the age of the hops – uh, seeds, etc., etc., and for something non-stored, not stored cold, in the 19th century, I would discount the hopping rate by 50%, which is what I did when I looked at the patent malt because that was 1895. So 1909, I only discounted it by a third, and I put all the hopping in, Fuggle Cluster and Halitau. I put it all in at boil. And that, in retrospect, may not have been what they did because it was a very hoppy, not hoppy as in bitter so much, but the flavour that came through from the cluster in particular was um, a bit overpowering. Because I don't actually know what the uh, SRM or EBC of the Parisian essence actually is, I did the conversion from the caramel as in the recipe and use so many grams per litre, 0.6, I think it was, and it came out a bit a bit milk chocolate rather than I, – I didn't want dark chocolate, didn't want light chocolate. It's a bit light, and uh, I used Nottingham because I that was the dry yeast I had, and there was a bit of comment about fruitiness and things. So Mark II, which I'll do at some stage of the double brown soap, uh, I, will, I will factor that down. It's always fun to to try these uh, historical recipes because you never actually know what you're going to get exactly. 
it's it's always funny with these colors that well what did they mean at the time and what the hell were the marketers saying and you know what was the the fad my guess was that as they were selling the oat malts out not only was would they want to to have this is my guess they would have differentiated it from the um, from the double brown double brown is very much marketing of course it's not much double about something that's half the strength of your other beer but it sounds good doesn't it it does and as to what the actual color was it it was probably not black and I would be expecting an oat malt stout to be at the blacker end of the scale. So a little bit of differentiation, perhaps, there. When you, you know the difference between the, the recipe that was on the patent versus the recipe that you dug out with, uh, you know, Barclay Perkins, and, the, and that big change now, a decreased amount of oat malt by a lot with more pale malt, and now also some flaked maize and, and some other bits. That was over the course, I think you said, of nine years, so like a, less than a decade. Yeah, about four, 14 years, yeah. Right, so why do, you, why do you think there would be that change? Like, I mean, was there, is it something about like the availability of the oat malt or pricing or fad or flaked maize is so damn cheap, let's use it for everything? Or why do you think it changed so radically? I would suspect that the competition who are doing oat meal stouts I reckon they the the patent recipe diverged to meet what the other people were doing as well. So there was a, a level of um, confluence, if you like, that perhaps the expectation of oat malt slash oatmeal, there was no differentiation in the in the consumer's mind, which meant that that if that oatiness, if there was too much oatiness coming through. That may not have been what people expected from an oat meal stout, and perhaps oat malt was too too malty, too too oaty. I mean, it's conjecture; it really is. Right, but it, it is interesting to think like if you are the one who establishes a market, or in this case, a style with a product, and then you suddenly have a bunch of imitators who who can move people's perceptions of what that product's supposed to be. Do you stay true? Do you stick to your guns and and the original recipe? And confound the market with your originality, or do you, or do you have to meet the customers and go, please, sir, give us your money? Um, I think it's the latter. I, I think if if your average punter goes into the bar and asks for asks for an oatmeal stout, they're not going to give a proverbial rat's whether it's oat malt or oatmeal. But they they would have after after making let, let's say they've made the market and now the imitators have come in, you've now got a style evolution to something that you would expect to find, at least up until the First World War, because post-World War One, the Great War, that would have been the go. Uh, then I think in the uh, from the experience and the details that I have, in the UK, the oat malt thing was very much just a, just a marketing thing or oatmeal. It was a nom- nominal amount in the grist uh, just for you know, trade practices, purposes, perhaps. Without the sort of obvious impact that we would expect. Like, I mean, I think consumers today, or at least beer geek consumers today, if you say, hey, you know, this is a oatmeal stout, or if you say this is a double dry hopped pale ale, or this has, you know, lactose, vanilla, and maple syrup in it, your your average beer geek is going to want to taste all those things and expect to be able to taste them without without having to hunt them out. There's not as much subtlety. Or avoid them entirely because it's not proper beer. <laughs> I, I think I think it's good to have a range of views on this topic. the The thing that 
I think is is different with oatmeal oatmeal so we just call them OMSs at the moment you get to the 1930s and that old style of stout the Guinness uh, export stout that had a level of acidity within it and perhaps a bit of brett that type of um, slightly harsher you know more acidity bit of lactic that was the old style and the newer style and that's really represented in the in the Tui's oatmeal stout that I've got details of, that very particularly, when analysed, had no acidity. So the consumer wanted something that wasn't acid. So the other bits and pieces, you probably did want that creamy, silky thing going on, and the lack of acidity would have given the impression of being um, uh, sweeter, I think. That, that's my guess. So would the original Macaulay stout been been slightly acidic at that time? Even with the even with like the lack of the roast malts and everything else, would that have been just slightly tangy? I think it could have been. And the reason I think that is um in the actual brewing log, the racking gravity was ten nineteen, ten twenty, something like that. Yet the analysis from the uh, British Medical Journal and the Lancet talked about 1014 that suggests to me that there's a period of aging and given the prevalence of brett in the uh, barrels etc it's possible that there was a, an amount of that if they served it fairly fresh it wouldn't have mattered because it, there wouldn't have been enough time for for that that acidity to develop but i think it given the rest of the grist all that oatmeal in there i, I think it would have been quite different to the export stouts of the day. Right, and so you would have had, particularly up against something that you're expecting to have an acid acid bite to it, or a twang, up against something like that, yeah, that, that little bit of oat, or I guess originally a lot of oat, would really read different. Yeah, it, 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 it would be much more like a... Uh, well, it would have been a, a different taste sensation than the the huge market that was um that was guinness now you're saying as we get up into the 30s this is this has changed we're not getting that same bite the the stouts are getting to be a softer more approachable uh, beverage still with lots of claims for specially recommended for invalids you know all that all that uh, all those claims that you can't make today that seems to be like in all the stuff i've i've seen and admittedly i'm, I'm i haven't been trolling back through archives like you you have it seems particularly like around beer, like a lot of the health claim type stuff, all centers on porter and stout. I don't think I've ever seen any, you know, any sort of mention of like, oh, you know, bitter is good for your health. It aids your digestion. Anytime I see those health claims, it always seems to be around porter and stout. Is that just an artifact of what I've, I've seen or was that kind of a, a thing? Yeah, because that's an interesting observation. I, I think Guinness is to blame a lot, as in Guinness is good for you. But that was picking up on some of the adverts I've seen for Milk Stout, also based on a on a patent, but more of a process patent. That one used a lot of health claims. I, I have seen health claims used in the in the nineteenth century for lager as being non intoxicating. Well, that's not intoxicating relative to the rocket fuel that was being provided from the ale breweries. It's all relative. But the invalid stouts, named as invalid stouts, 
good for nursing mothers, all those types of things, there must have been some level of view by the medical profession. It can't be all marketing. There has to be some grain of truth in this somewhere, I hope. Perhaps it was higher final gravities, that there was more nutrition left in the stout. The dextrins left there might have um, added to nutrition. Or you've got special uh, linseed additives to uh, <laughs> keep everything regular. <laughs> to, to help keep your life smooth. Yes, yes. Uh, look, we, 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 could, we, could, we could almost do taglines on them. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's not get into the bowels of that discussion. Yes, let's not. In the 30s, we're, we're softer and sweeter. What's changing about oatmeal and oat malt stouts? Because, I mean, by this point, aren't they kind of going out of favor? You'd have to say that an, an oat malt stout, oatmeal stout, has been niche. I've seen them partygarled, and you know, a classic example of partygarling would be Whitbread. Whitbread produced um, London stout, oatmeal stout, and extra stout from the one grist. This grist had the magnificent... 0.7% according to my calculation of oats. The analysis of London Stout and Oatmeal Stout, exactly the same. 1047, 1013, 4.5%. London Stout equals Oatmeal Stout. The extra stout came from the party guy was 1055 to 1017, that was 5%. So that's, that's pure marketing. That's just doing uh, enough to show willing. It's just a pinch between the cheek and the gums. I, I read one in one of the brewer's journals, um, letter to the editor, and a brewer was showing signs of, of conscience and, and had basically asked how much oatmeal should he put in, and it was a he, how much should he put in to be a fair representation? And the, the general view was, you know, a few percent. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it became nominal. Uh, we got the niche market growing nicher. We got the difference between the recipes virtually vanishing into into an ever thinning slice of a penny. Except a throwback here in Australia, the Tui's oat malt stout launched in nineteen thirty three. Five and a half percent, five point four, five and a half percent ABV, twenty eight percent malted oats. Now, very much a, a throwback to that original patent. Whether the head brewer of the day liked oat malt stout, had found out about it, decided to make it, it's probably one of those head brewer decisions. Tuis with a small brewer in Sydney compared to Toos in the 30s. Toos had chief stout, and that was their non-acidic stout, and they needed something to compete. And, you know, they've used oat malt as a differentiator, I think. It, it lasted right the way through into the mid-1970s. Oh, wow. I'm trying to think, like, what, Mackley's uh, oat malt stout disappeared in the 90s? It did. Uh, from, what I've, from what I can find, it disappeared around 1999, when the business basically stopped trading. That's interesting that the second longest lived example of this style is, you know, all the way down there in Australia, you know, far away from the its invention yeah I, and and they brewed um been lucky enough to go through the auburn archive at, at, at Tui's, and they brewed it consistently they brewed a lot of stout and one of the i i almost put it down as irony so they launched oatmeal stout in far north queensland in january 
And just for the slow learners, January in the Southern Hemisphere is a touch warm. And they launched it as being oatmeal stout, good on the ice. Well, I think it would be absolutely imperative at that sort of um, you know, 30, 35 degree centigrade temperature during the summer. So it would have been smooth. It would be, I, I reckon it would have been a good drop even, even in those temperatures. I love the idea of it being on ice because, I mean, as a kid growing up here in the States, obviously we didn't see people do stouts and, or stouts on ice, uh, but you always see the old men sitting at the bar drinking like a Coors Light on ice with some salt to, in order to get to be colder and more refreshing and less bitter, which is saying something about Coors Light. Right. Now, <laughs> hey, it, it takes all kinds. If we're looking at the, the, the two-way stout, which, is, again, you said I think was 28%, so somewhere in, right in around that same 30% range where the Macaulay stout had come in like after the patent. If you had your, your druthers, if, if you could make a choice between the original version that's in the patent versus like you know, that later version with around 30% oatmeal, where would you go? I would still go around 20 to 30% oatmeal. Now I, I have I have brewed not recently a few years ago, and so is my uh, uh, good mate Barry Cranston has brewed oatmeal stout with with plenty of oats, and I actually like oat malt rather than the naked. I think with the naked you've virtually got to put rice holes in. Well, I had to anyway. So if I quick comparison then, so about thirty percent oat malt. It's Australian beer, so you can't have Australian beer without sugar. So 14% white cane sugar. Use some high-dried malt, 42%. Uh, so mild ale malt, Vienna, or a higher dried malt. Nearly all stouts of this type uh, use a bit of crystal, so some pale crystal, and a bit of black patent, and, of course, a dollop of Parisian essence. That, to me, is is a fairly classic mix. The interesting thing that, well, one of the interesting things is I've noticed in uh, the Australian stouts is that they were dry hopped. It's been tricky to find because they don't normally put the dry hopping on the same page as the as the brew log. But if you look in the uh, the more accounting side sheets, you can see where they've totted up dry hopping, and then with the batch number, you can get back to where you are. They were they were dry hopping um, a pound per imperial barrel, which is two point seven seven grams per liter. Which is quite a quite a decent drop, and that that makes a difference. It really does. And they wouldn't have been dry hopping with anything like what the modern hops that we have. It would be more along your cluster, probably. Well, and just as a reminder for everybody, cluster, despite being an American hop, had a largely global presence in the beer industry for ever and a damn day. Yeah, wi- widely used was planted in um, both. Um, in New Zealand and, and Tasmania and Victoria in the early 20th century, uh, known as uh, uh, California roots. Yeah, I, I like saying that in, uh, in, in your all's discussions of various brew logs where, uh, yeah, no, there's California hops or uh, Oregon hops, and <laughs> pretty much everybody's like, yep, that's Cluster. Well, you, you do have to be a little bit circumspect because Cluster was, was not the only hop being grown. When California, I, I have found references to Bohemian roots grown in California, which you could say would be a Sats derivative. And I've also seen references to Fuggle, 
So it's not impossible to uh, use different types of hops, but will we ever know? Probably not. Still, I mean, the the, the largest portion of the crop was still was still cluster. So it's usually a, it's usually something you can just go, yeah, that's probably cluster. Yeah, it, the, the the probabilities are there. Yeah. It's interesting to think, so cluster to me, uh, a combination of cat pea and blueberry or blackberry, along with some uh, piney and, and some herbal notes. I'm trying to think how, how that would go up against a stout, like with all those roast, uh, roast tones. I see. See, now you're already, you've applied a filter to that comment because that's your experience of, of, of U.S. grown cluster. True. Fair point. So it's probable again that the cluster, while genetically the same material when it got to Australia, they, uh, they, as in the brewers of the day all the way through until Pride of Ringwood was introduced sort of in the mid-late 70s, that's 1970s for people that are following along, they used it fairly interchangeably with um, Golding's derivatives. They... they um, it was quite a mild flavour, I think. Perhaps the cluster was not quite as harsh and um, have all those attributes that you ascribe to it. I keep forgetting. Hop terroir is something that we've been talking about, something that uh, people forgot about, and it's now coming back. Once again, circle of life. <laughs> mm, mm, yep. And you're, and you're saying that that dry hopping is sort of a, I don't want to say universal, but a, but a heavily subscribed to trend in these Australian stouts? Yeah, I've I've seen it in um, uh, in enough brewing logs of both Toos and Tuis that it was very much the dumb thing. Interesting. So, well, and then again, I mean, I like a dry hop stout, but of course, all my my experience has largely been with uh, American dry hop stouts, where you know, step on the gas and give me the give me the citrus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, it has its place. It's interesting to me that like this style came up for a little while faded from popularity but never really kind of completely went away until the late 90s at least the oat malt side and somehow the oatmeal is what's kind of survived even though it's still very much a niche, niche product well I, I i would beg beg to differ in my in my research uh, michael jackson in the 90s made the statement that it basically oat, oatmeal stack was dead it had lost, and it was Samuel Smith that re- reintroduced it. Now they they obviously did reintroduce it, particularly to the states, but had not actually gone away because um, that now defunct brewery called Youngs of Wandsworth had been making uh, oatmeal stout since 1905, and they that brewery only only stopped in 2006 and and now they've reintroduced what they call london stout which is now it's gone from being a product that was associated with a place to a brand and there is a differentiation there in my mind that once it becomes a brand it's no longer got the uh, cachet i think is probably the right word uh, that it used to have but it's still there. So, yeah, uh, oatmeal stack's not really gone away, but it's never been uh, such a big deal. It's just it's just something that, that Addison Valley do a uh, do the Barney Flats oatmeal stack, uh, 
and, and I have had that uh, at the brewery, and that's a very nice drop. Uh, it's quite different. It's quite different to the ones we've been discussing. Right, I was going to say, because it still has a, a fairly assertive American character to it. Yeah, for, from the from the the, the hopping. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got in touch with, with Fal Allen because uh, I visited the brewery with Jamil Zanushev and Barry Cranston way back in, oh, God, I don't know, 2000 and something, and um, drank their uh, oatmeal stout and their barrel-aged stout, which was very yummy. Uh, so I got in touch with him, and he very kindly provided his oatmeal stout recipes from 2011 to 2015. And I did some clarifications with him, and yeah, it, it's very low IBU compared to the ones we've been talking about. Very much uh, uh, an American flavoured hops with um, Columbus Northern Brewer uh, and Cascade at Flame Out, but no dry hopping. So, but yeah, that, that's that's a, a different take. And very my my very vague memory of it. It was, it was very smooth, very drinkable. It's it's still five uh, five point eight something like that percent. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's 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 not quite a session beer, but it's a it's a a lovely beer. Yeah, and uh, from the analysis, it's it's about ten percent rolled oats. Well, he's using the the not the instant oats, but the 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 flaked then because uh, he's not using steel cut. No. Um, what did he say about that? Uh, uh, I think it was just flaked oats, uh, and I've put them in as as rolled oats. Yeah, I mean to be fair, I mean rolled oats, as as you talked up at the front, has its purpose and it has its own unique impact. Uh, it's not as dramatic as say the the oat malt or the golden naked oats or anything like that, but it is still a very a, a very noticeable presence in the beer in terms of the mouthfeel. It is interesting to see that ten percent because. Again, we're still seeing that drop back. I mean, not as bad as the, what was it, 0.7%? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, before I let you go and get on with your Saturday, anything is there anything else that you think that people should know about either oat malt, oat malt stouts or oatmeal stouts? I think what, if, if you like a stout and you haven't actually brewed an oatmeal or oat malt stout, I would recommend you do so. Uh, I gave a talk to the London Amateur Brewers um, recently, and uh, they've captured that and um, and put that up on YouTube. You could find the recipes there uh, on that on that video of the ones we've been talking about, and give it a shot. It's a uh, it's a style that is very quaffable and is very different from Irish stouts or or really more bitter American stats. So yeah, give it a crack. As always, it's a good chance to explore an ingredient like oat malt. As I said up front, it used to be a very limited supply of people who who brought oat malt over here into the States. Again, the one I always remember was Thomas Fawcett's. It was the only one I could find. Simpsons had golden naked oats. Now we're starting to see more UK oat malts, but we're also starting to see more American producers of oat malts. In fact, uh, I believe Sugar Creek, who we had on the show a couple of weeks back, also has an oat malt. So it's becoming a thing. Of course, a lot of people are using it for hazy IPAs over here, but uh, remember, stout shouldn't be dead. Make some stouts. Yes, absolutely. It's good for you. Stout is good for you. And it comes with, if you put the additional ingredients in, it, 
it comes with additional benefits. Two, uh, two out of two podcast people agree that oat malt has health benefits. <laughs> 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 this message not endorsed by the FDA. All right. Well, hey. Peter, thank you again. And as always, we'll include links to Peter's books because, uh, again, some of this discussion comes from uh, Guile Brewers, or at least some of the, the, the stuff that, that we had talked about in the past. All those books are available for you to be able to buy. And as always, get out there, make yourself a stout, and enjoy yourself. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at the wonderful, drinkable, niche world of the oat malt slash oatmeal stout. There have been many made over the years, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't make one of your own. And frankly, I find that patented version to be, I don't know, a trip. Who knew? A stout with no roast. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.